How about we bow our heads right now? Why don't we ask for God's help before we look into the subject today? God, we do want you to help us. Would you please be our teacher this morning? If there's a good news revealed here in the middle of this letter, penned in the middle of the first century, we want to know it. We want to find out what your message is to us. We want to find the liberty that you have for us. We want to walk in it. And so, uh, Lord, would you uh, not only be our teacher, but also be the empowerer, the one who brings us into kind of life change that we couldn't have before, before we intersected with this good news from Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So today we're going to get to something that's pretty counterintuitive. So I want to first talk about what counterintuitive is all about. So a counterintuitive idea is something that doesn't seem to be true based on intuition or based on common sense. And so I want to give you a famous example of a a counterintuitive problem. It's called the Monty Hall brain teaser problem, and it's based on the game show Let's Make a Deal. How many of you watched the show Let's Make a Deal? All right, so you've dated yourself nicely. Excellent. All right, so here, here's how that goes, right? So suppose Monty Hall uh, shows you three doors, which is always what happens, right, at the end of the show, and behind one door is a car, but behind the other two doors are goats, and uh, you get to pick a door, okay? So let's say you pick door number one, but Monty, who knows what's behind the other doors, opens another door for you, let's say it's door number three, which has a goat, all right? So this is the way the thing goes, is that when, when Monty gets to open one of the other doors you didn't pick, he always picks one with a goat. Now, there's two unopened doors remaining, and Monty says to you, do you want to switch doors? So now you can stay with door number one, or you can pick door number two. Question, are you mathematically more likely to win the car by staying or by switching? So think about that for just a second. What will most people do? Most people will say, okay, well, we got two doors left. One of them has a car, one of them doesn't. So there's a 50-50 chance that door number one is right. So there's no greater probability of me winning by switching, so I'm just going to stay. That's the way people intuitively think about this problem. In actuality, however, it is always to your advantage to switch doors after Monty reveals a goat. In fact, mathematically, the odds of winning by staying are one-third, and the odds of switching are two-thirds, if you can believe that. Now, is that counterintuitive? Now, some of you are furiously debating with me in your own head right now. This is so counterintuitive. So, now, this is a sermon uh, by a Canadian about Romans and not a game show led by a Canadian. You didn't know that, did you? Monty Hall's a Canuck. So, uh, but, okay, so because we're talking about Romans this morning, I don't have the time to explain why I'm right and you're wrong. So, I'm just going to show you this chart. So, take a look at that chart. That's all I'm going to give you. And then later you can Google it and figure it out. Don't Google it now. All right. So, when it comes to uh, counterintuitive problems, we are faced with one right here in the middle of Romans. If, as, if you understand everything that Dan laid out for us last week. So Dan was teaching us about the heart of Christianity, which is simply good news. And here's the theme verse, Romans chapter 3, verse 27. This is amazing. So we are made right with God through faith and not through obeying the law. Think about that. Just let it soak in for a bit. That's amazing. Think about that. Think of how counterintuitive that is, for starters. This idea that you could be made right with God and not because you're good enough, like not because you're a good person, because you've done all sorts of good stuff, but just by faith and that God would give it to you as a gift. He would make you right, unearned free, wow. Okay, now here's something more that's counterintuitive. Therefore what? 
If that's true, if you accept that, therefore, what does your intuition tell you must be true if you get righteousness from God as a gift and not something that you earn? In other words, it's independent of your behavior. What does that tell you? What do you intuit after that? Well, doesn't your intuition tell you that that no longer it matters how I live? Like, that's what your intuition would tell you, right? If I can be right with God no matter how I've lived, then it doesn't matter how I live, right? In fact, the worse I am, the better God looks in some sense because he just looks more and more merciful the more and more sinful I am, right? Now, that's where your intuition takes you, and Paul knows that because he asks the question rhetorically. This is a verse now from chapter one or chapter six, verse one, he says, well then, and he asks rhetorically, should we keep on sinning so that God may show us more and more of his wonderful grace? And what's his response to that intuition? Verse two, no, of course not. Why not? Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Okay, so Paul gets it. He understands where your intuition's gonna go. So he understands what might be wrongly inferred from the good news, that we can be made right with God as a gift and not because we earned it. And so you could wrongly infer that therefore it doesn't matter how you live. So he wants to leave no doubt that the gospel, which makes us right with God by grace, counterintuitively leads to less sin, not more. That is totally counterintuitive, isn't it? But that's what he wants you to get. He wants you to get that this amazing grace, which makes you friends again with God as a gift, leads to you being a better person and not a worse person, leads to you becoming more like God and not less like God. How? Well, that's what this section is all about. And it begins with those words, you died to sin. When you come to Christ, he says, you died to sin. That's how you came to him. Now, remember last week that Dan said that you're justified. You're made right with God. God makes you friends with him just simply based on faith alone. Faith alone. And when you heard the word faith alone, some of you thought, oh, faith, what is that? Faith is believing stuff without evidence, maybe some of you thought. Or maybe others of you thought, well, faith is just believing stuff to be true. So I used to not believe in Jesus, but now I believe that Jesus really existed. Or I used to not believe that God raised him from dead, and now I believe. Like I give mental assent to the idea that God raised him from the dead, and that's faith. And then that's what, that was what makes me a Christian. Well, that's a deficient view of faith. How do we know that? Because we know that coming to Christ includes what Paul says right here. Don't you know that when you came to Christ, you died to sin? That's part of faith. If faith is a package, one of the things is believing stuff. But another part of the faith package is trusting So that's what dying to sin is. Faith is not just believing things to be true. Faith is trusting. And the trust part of faith is evident only when one changes their mind about how they used to live. Another way to say that is die to it. They die to to the way they used to live and trust Jesus instead. They used to trust who? You, I guess. And now you stop that. You die to that and you trust Jesus instead. In fact, this is exactly what is profoundly being stated every time a new Christian is baptized. And so that's actually what he says. His next argument is from the example of baptism. So he goes in in verse three of the same chapter. He says, or did you forget that when you were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in death. 
For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, so now we also may live a new life. Okay, now some of you are going to get baptized in June, and I am so excited for you. This is amazing. Our whole church is going to go crazy with celebration because it marks this change from death to life, from working on your own to try to be good enough for God to realizing that God has given you um, uh, right standing with himself by grace. It's amazing. And so the, the class, by the way, is on June the 4th, and I hope that some of you are just considering it. You will come to the class and figure out what is the meaning and significance of baptism. But here's the deal. You need to remember, and anyone who's been baptized in this room, need to remember that your baptism is sort of a living illustration that's of everything that's transpired between you and God. So how is that? So the baptism, think about it, it's a public ceremonial washing. And so when you come up out of water, it's like you got clean. And now you realize, wait a minute, I was dirty, now I'm clean. So it's a living illustration of the idea that God removes that, that dirt, that, that moral stain by grace just because he loves you and not because you earned it or worked for it. But the second thing this thing illustrates, baptism illustrates, is that you die. Like literally, you know, like a dead person, what happens when you die? Pretty much you stop standing. That's one thing I can guarantee about you when you die, is you're gonna stop being able to stand. Boom, you go prone, you go horizontal. Well, guess what? That's exactly what happens at baptism. You go horizontal, you get under that water like a dead person. And then you come up living a new life. So baptism illustrates this idea that you die and then you live. It's amazing. All right, so if you get that, then we have a new problem. So you say, okay, wait, uh, we're not forgiven so that we can just sin all the more. That's, we already said, by no means. That's not what we're supposed to infer from the good news. So we're supposed to be dead to sin. Got it, check. But wait a minute. I couldn't please Christ before I became a Christian. It wasn't possible for me to do it. That's why I needed grace. That's why I needed to be covered in God's amazing mercy. So now what am I supposed to do? Now that I'm in Christ, I'm supposed to go back to the law. I'm supposed to struggle and muscle it along with the law of Moses. I couldn't obey it in the first place. No, that's not what you're supposed to do. And so here's what Paul says about that. And we move to the next chapter, chapter seven. Verse one, he says, now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, and now he's turning to his Jewish audience. So there's Jews and Gentiles in Rome. Now he's talking to the Jews, and he says, don't you know that the law applies only to a person who is still living? Let me illustrate, and this matters. Paul uses very few illustrations in all of his letters. So when he illustrates, it's like, okay, this must matter. This is an important window into what he's trying to say. So here's the illustration. When a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he's alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. Next verse. So this is the point. The law no longer holds you in its power because you died to its power when you died with Christ on the cross. And now you are unified with the one who was raised from the dead and as a result, you can produce good fruit. That is good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires that work within us, and the law aroused those evil desires that produced sinful deeds, resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died with Christ, and we are no longer captive to its power. Now we can really serve God, not in the old way, by obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way, by the Spirit. 
Okay, a lot of words. What's he saying? In a nutshell, he's saying, when you died to sin, you also died to the law. Yeah, and I'm talking about the Mosaic law, you know, all that stuff, all those regulations to be made right with God. You died to sin and you died to the law. You say, how does that work? Roll with the metaphor. Before Christ, you were married. Just imagine it, okay? And you're married to a man, okay? All the men in the room, just channel your feminine side. Now imagine you're married to a man. Let's give him a name. His name is Mr. Law, okay? Now you're married. We're all married in this room to Mr. Law. And guess what? It's a miserable marriage. It's a terrible marriage. You say, why? Well, because the law is perfect. Mr. Law is perfect. So imagine being married to someone who never makes any mistakes. You can ask John about this one. It's very difficult for her. It is really, really hard. It's, it's hard on the self-image. So can you imagine this, Mr. Law? He is inflexible. He's demanding. Mr. Law is, he will not tolerate excuses, half-hearted attempts. Mr. Law is black and white. And so imagine waking up every morning to the inevitable condemnation of Mr. Perfection. Oh yeah, it's a terrible marriage. As a frustrated bride living under such pressure, what do we do? We lash out. We lash out in anger and fear. We sin. Get this. Living with a perfectionist, Mr. Law, has actually made us less perfect. Huh. That's what he's saying in verse 5. Married to Mr. Law, you actually got worse, not better. Can you believe that? Living with Mr. Law, ironically, arouses more sin in us than if we didn't even know him. You say, how does that work? Well, think about it. You know, you see a sign. Slow down. You say, why? Think about this just through the, the lens of your two-year-old, right? You know, you think maybe generally your two-year-old has a bit of a rebellious streak, but try laying down some rules, and then you'll see, right? Then you'll know for sure. It's like, ah, oh, he's, got, he's got a lot of spunk, that little one. Now lay down a road. Don't touch the television. Uh. What are you going to do about it? This is, this is built in, right? This is like built in. This is hardwired. And fi- so what the law does is exacerbates it. It actually shows it more, this rebellious streak that lives in us. You see a rule, no entry. I just want to peek inside there. So the law, laying down the rules, actually makes it worse. So now follow Paul's analogy. One morning, you wake up, and Mr. Law is dead. He's dead. And to tell the truth, you feel a little bit more relieved than remorseful. And why is that? Why is that? Well, with our old husband dead, we are now free to marry another. And that one other is Jesus, the Christ. And how will this new marriage be different? Oh, friend, it's going to be radically different because Jesus can do for you what the law couldn't do. Did you see in our illustration here? We're just reading from a translation of Romans chapter 8. The law is perfect. All of its precepts, perfect. Perfect fairness, perfect justice. That's what that whole eye for an eye, two for two thing, you think, oh, that's horrible. No, it's perfect justice. It's perfect fairness. That's the law. But it was perfect in precept, but it was powerless to change you. Perfect in precept, but powerless to change you. Now Jesus can do what the law couldn't do because he puts the law inside. 
Did you know that's the promise? The Jews believed that. At the time of Jesus, there would be Jews who knew there's a day coming when a new covenant is going to be made. And you know what's going to be the hallmark of the new covenant? The new covenant is going to take all this mosaic stuff, all the precepts of all the perfect fairness and justice and beauty and love, and it's going to take it from the outside. It's going to put it on the inside. And we're going to have God's law written right here. Instead of right here, we're going to have it written here in our hearts and so now he that is Jesus is going to be able or help us to be able to live up to that thing that used to do nothing but condemn us so that now look back at verse 4 we can actually be spiritually fruitful instead of fruitless and frustrated instead of saying oh I want to do the good thing like the song was saying earlier I want to do the good but I can't do the good. and the things that I think you know seem right you know uh, feel wrong and the things that feel right seem wrong Instead of that whole struggle, um, we're going to actually going to be able to please God. Now, you, you say, well, didn't I want to please God or be a good person before Christ? Yeah, sure. There's still that idea that you're going to try to please God, but in a whole new way. You're dying to the old way, and the old way is what? The way of the law. You're dying to the old way. Look again at verse 6. Now we can really serve God, not in the old way, by obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way, by the Spirit. See, what was the old way? The old way was outside in, right? And some of you are familiar with the old way. Striving, effort, guilt, fear, condemnation, have I done enough? Outside in. The new way is inside out. The new way is inside out. The new way is reborn from the inside and God, your ever-present partner, enabling and empowering and motivating you from the inside to please him, to live according to his good way. And oh, friends, the difference between being externally motivated and being internally motivated. You just can't believe the difference. Back in 1985 uh, was when I went to college. Yeah, back in the Stone Age, back when the earth was cooling. And uh, so I'm 18 years old. It's going to be my first time away from home for a long period of time. It's 600 miles away from my, my uh, farming community that I grew up in. And so on the first day of college, my parents dropped me off there. And uh, I, I set up shop in a dormitory called Maine Men's. So Maine Men's Dormitory. It was like built in the 1920s. It was decrepit. It was falling down. Anyhow, so I set up in this, in this, uh, this dorm room. And uh, so my mom, you know, kind of looks it over and just kind of gives me the... the uh, the, uh, the scope of what I'm supposed to do here. You know, here, now you've got to do laundry. You're going to have to do some of your own cooking. Here's your room. You know, keep this clean and all that kind of stuff. So she goes, and now I'm on my own. I'm bachelor. I'm in college, man. I'm independent. I'm free as a bird. And promptly, no laundry gets done. You see people showing up a class with uh, their, their Sunday best, like literally with three-piece suit, and you go, laundry day. So you know, when you got nothing left, when you got nothing left but the suit and tie, you know, like you're scraping the bottom of the sock drawer at that point, right? So that was kind of me, right? So my, my dorm room is filling up. It looks horrible. I'm not doing laundry, that kind of thing. Mom visits me in the middle of the first semester and looks at this thing and goes, oh, she's a gas, like mo no son of mine. And so then she gives me like a list. So she goes, here, you're going to, you know, here, here's how you do the laundry and here's how you make sure, you, you know, the dorm room's clean and that whole thing. And... Um, yeah, I never followed any of that, you know? So, like, it's a year, my first, my first whole year, my, my dorm room never got clean. I never really had the laundry fully done, folded right, none of that stuff, no, no. Second year, same deal. Finally, middle of the second year, mom visits, like she did, like, once every year. End of first semester, she shows up, 
and my room, my, my dorm room is, ding, it's like amazing. It's clean, and my laundry is stacked and folded and done. And you go, what happened? What happened? I met Jonna. <laughs> I was in love. <laughs> and I want to impress my girl. And oh, friends, the difference between internally motivated and being externally motivated changes the ball game. I was in love. I had stars in my eyes. And all this stuff that I knew I should do, now I was internally motivated to do and to be. Some of you got a 13-year-old son and you can't get him to clean the greasy hair and all of a sudden he's showering every other minute and he wants expensive European shampoos. What happened? He met a girl. That's what happened. He met a girl. And now he's internally motivated to do the things he always knew he wanted to do and oh, I want to do it, but I can't do it. And that's that Romans 7 dilemma. So after we come to faith in Christ, do we just believe a few beliefs and then just sin all the more because God's so awesome and gracious? No. Do we go back to guilt-burdened, lawful striving like the legalist says? No. But here's the reality, friend. And it'll maybe shock you, a little cold water to your face today. Coming to Jesus does not immediately eliminate the compulsion to sin. And Paul will go into great detail to explain that Christians still struggle. And by the way, if you want to stick around, we will get into the depth of it in Extended today. That's what our Extended slot is all about. We do a little extra teaching, and we're going to go into that Romans 7 struggle. The struggle is still real, and it's still there, even for the follower of Jesus. And so he ends that whole conversation, I'll summarize it, Romans chapter 7 with the last words. He says, Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So get that. Jesus is the answer for our guilt problem. So that we, yes we, you and me, you know we're regular people. We sin and we know the brokenness that's on the inside is real and we have no excuse And God, in his mercy, welcomes us. And Jesus is the answer to that guilt problem and says, you'll be adopted into my family. But then secondarily, Jesus is also the answer to my sin problem, the struggle that I have even after Christ, where I've still got this hanger-on influence that's still pulling me down. He is the one that that allows me to change and grow and to, to be different, internally motivating me with a new power. And you say, how, how, how? By his Spirit by God's Spirit. And now we turn the page to chapter 8. And in chapter 8 we realize that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. So here's what God does, okay? He fills you with His Spirit. Some of you have been through a recovery And um, we hear about addicts in recovery programs, right? And they get clean, and it's super cool, and it's great, but sometimes only temporarily, and that's heartbreaking. Why? I think sometimes the reason why, sometimes the reason they don't get clean permanently is because they don't get filled back up with something better. So the drugs, what they did is they filled some vacuous space in the middle, and then that gets kicked out through recovery program and through, you know, faithful accountability and the whole nine yards, but now that leaves a space, And then we fill that, the vacuum gets filled with something else, and now I'm right back to compulsive behaviors, and sometimes the addict is worse off after going through recovery than they were before. 
Well, understand something, friend. God never intends to clean you up and, and remove sin from your life without filling you back up with something better. And the answer to what better thing? And the answer is himself. That's the answer. So I want you to look at this word law, right? So he says, through Christ, we've been set free from the law of sin and death, through the law of the Spirit. This is an interesting thing. The law of the Spirit, the law of sin and death. Look at the word law, and you sometimes think, well, that must be a rule, a list of rules, right? A list of moral demands. But actually, the way Paul's using it here, he uses it to mean compulsion. So the same way that you'd use it to say the law of gravity, like a force that's acting on you. Like the law of gravity is not like a list of you know, rules, right? It's just a force. It's working on you. Well, that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that all Christians, anyone who's come to faith in Jesus Christ, now has forces working on them. There's the force of sin and death that's still working on you even though you're in Christ. But now you have this other thing that you didn't have before Jesus, the Spirit. But the latter the latter power has the power to overcome the former. And so I just want to give you a bit of a word picture so you imagine you're still being acted on, right, by these forces, but now there's a new force available. There's a new, fresh wind in your life and it is the power of the Holy Spirit. So you imagine you're a tightrope walker, right? So there you are on the high wire. And below you, to the right, let's say, is a safety net. But to the left, there's no net, now you're carrying the standard pole, but this is a different kind of pole because it's weighted on the right. And so there's a heavier weight. Now, the force of gravity is, is pulling on both sides. But the force on the right is greater than the force on the left. Now you can compensate, you could lean way left if you wanted to and fall off left into sure destruction. But naturally, if you're just carrying this special pole, you're leaning to the right and you're leaned into safety. In that same way, a new power is at work on Christians. It is the power of the Spirit of God. Now here's the thing. The Spirit does not, not from now until you're dead, the Spirit does not completely obliterate the compulsion of the sinful nature. You're still gonna feel that rebellious streak on the inside, it's gonna be with you. But here's the deal. The Spirit of God, welcomed by your act of faith, is bigger and stronger and greater in you than the one who's in the world. So what, we, what do you have to do? You have to cooperate with the Spirit of God and we will eventually land in safety. How does that happen? Well, we talked about this a couple of months ago and we, we had a whole series on the Holy Spirit. So I'm not gonna go into big detail today. You can actually check that sermon out online on our website. All those past sermons are there. We talk about what it means to live by the Spirit. But I'll just summarize here, okay? So this is chapter eight, verse five. Check this out. This is, answers the how. How do I work with uh, the Holy Spirit? Chapter eight, verse five says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their mindset on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man, death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Okay, so here's the practical question that every follower of Jesus wants answered, and that's this. How do I practically experience the Spirit's power in my life so that I can please God? And the answer is a question. Where is your mind set? Where is your mind set? That's, that's the answer. See, th there's two powers, friend. 
there's two pulls, there's two laws, there's two compulsions available to the Christian. There was only one before Christ, but now there's two. One of them is this natural pull, and it's born into all the daughters and sons of Adam, the power of sin, that southward gravitational pull of the flesh to pull us away from God. The other, now available to you, is a supernatural pull born into all the sons and daughters of the Spirit, which can overcome this southward gravitational pull of self and rebellion. Now, question. Where do both these laws, remember compulsion, where do both these powers find traction? Both of them. Where do they both find traction? In the mind. In the mind. So if we are in the spirit, we're going to set our minds on what he wants. But if we're still walking in the flesh, we're going to set our minds on what the self wants. Now, what does that mean, set our minds? That's an interesting phrase. Here's what it means. I'll give you a definition. To set our minds means to make a thing the absorbing object of our interest, affection, and purpose. Now, can you say you set your mind on the Spirit? Can can you say that? Have you set your mind on what the Spirit desires? So, there is still the flesh, and it's still pulling on us, yes. But if the Spirit is also there, a power of life inside you, calling you, helping you, empowering you to die to that old way, to live out your baptism every single day, how? As you think about what God wants. So, what does that mean for you if you are there? You know, you're that struggling person with these two poles and yet victorious because of the Spirit's work in you. What does that mean for you? I want you to follow where we've been through this series so far. Remember, bad news was that everyone was condemned and without excuse before a holy God. Good news was that God makes you right by grace. This is apart from what you do. You don't have to earn it and you can't deserve it. Wow. But bad news, I still have this compulsion inside of me, the southward gravitational pull that keeps me now from pleasing the God I love, the God who's bought me and sought me and gave me grace and a new standing and adopted me. But good news is that this God himself will be with you and will live in you by his spirit so that you can want to do and to actually do the things that please him. And oh, there's more good news. After all our struggle here, and you, yes, you will struggle But also, you, yes, you are destined for victory. For one day, and this is what the gospel teaches, God will wrap up history like a scroll, and he will forge a new heaven and a new earth with all of his redeemed, adopted family. That's your destiny. That's where this thing is headed. And I want you to just catch the picture that Paul paints. It's just so beautiful. Drink it in. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 19. Now he says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. In other words, the new kingdom is going to be revealed through you, the resurrected ones. And then verse 23, Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. Why do we groan? Because it's not all here yet. It's now, the Spirit's with you now, but not yet, not fully, as we eagerly await our adoption as daughters and sons, the redemption of our bodies. Heaven, friends, is going to come to earth one day through us. That's what Paul is saying. So I want you to tell me, what's missing from this picture? Like, what did God forget to do when he set about to save the world? Like, what did he leave out 
of the plan. Do you understand how fully and completely and totally, do you understand how total is the work that God has done in order to redeem you, to buy you back, and to adopt you into his family? Understand, it's past and it's present and it's future. You were saved. On the day that you said yes to Jesus, your guilt was gone and God said, righteous. You are being saved by the Spirit of God inside. Sin's current power is being beaten in your life day by day. That's today. But tomorrow you will be saved because all of sin's potential consequences to bring you into an eternal death are obliterated in Christ. You were saved, you are saved, you are going to be saved, and I just have to let Paul speak now. This is so powerful. Verse 31, he just loses himself. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? (laughs) AC3, I just wish I could just inject this like a needle into your veins today so that you understand God is for you. And some of you are still debating with God about that. Well, you know, I don't know if God's on my side. It feels like maybe he's a bad... No, he's for you. He's on your side. And he's demonstrated undeniably, historically, in the work of Jesus Christ. And I don't care what else is going on in your life. You see what he does, right? He says, he names a few things that could make you maybe think that God's abandoned you, that he's not for you, that he's not on your side, like trouble, nakedness, danger, sword, hmm, temporary problems. You think maybe that's an indicator that God's not on your side? You're wrong. God is on your side. He is for you. And he just dares you to debate with him on this. He says, you know, who can accuse us? God, look, look when, when the judge says not guilty, then does it matter? Who else says, no, you're still guilty? I don't care. Because the judge said not guilty. I don't care what you say. You don't have to care what your neighbor says anymore because God says not guilty. Who can condemn us? Well, my shaming mother, or my, so we shouldn't say it on Mother's Day. My shaming... <laughs> My, my shaming neighbor, my shaming friend, whatever. No, friends, no. That doesn't get to work because Jesus Christ himself is interceding for you. He's your lawyer. You understand what that means? Who can divorce us? He's just begging you to debate with him on this. Can you be divorced from the love of a God who has made your soul safe? If your soul is safe, then you're safe. So what are you afraid of? I mean, what grips you today with fear and trepidation and I'm not sure about tomorrow. I mean, I don't know what it is, but you just compare it to this. To all those things that you think potentially stand in the way, Paul says, no. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, he loses himself. Now, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No, nothing, nothing, nothing. Nothing can divorce us from God's love in Christ. So what are you afraid of? Like if you have been so loved, so perfectly loved that your destiny is victory, what are you afraid of? 
fear, rejection, a painful death, being alone. What are you afraid of? You are, we are more than conquerors. It's five words in the English. It's one word in the Greek. Did you know that? One word, what is it? Hyper Nike. You don't have to know Greek to know what that means. Hyper, yes, like your five-year-old son. Crazy, over the top, exceedingly, abundantly, hyper, right? Nike, what does that mean? Victory. It doesn't mean shoe. It means victory. You are overwhelmingly victorious because of God. He has made you overwhelmingly victorious. Do you understand? We win going away. Do you understand? This isn't a close one. You know, it's not a squeaker as time expires with a field goal, right? It's, it's 48 nothing. Home team wins. If there's a ticker tape parade, there's glory, and you win. You win over everything that threatens you now. Why? Because of God's amazing grace. And now maybe you're beginning to understand why Christians call it amazing. It's amazing grace. You are fully saved. You were saved. You are being saved. You will be saved. Transformed. The earth restored. World without end. Amen. 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 If I had a microphone, I would drop it right now but I'm just gonna settle for praying for you. Let's pray. Oh God, may we who love the Lord Jesus Christ understand what we have been given more and more so that we would get our eyes off of everything that terrifies us today and put our eyes on the God who is for us, who has said, not guilty, and so has removed any threat of accusation or condemnation or separation. We're yours. And we have been bought and paid for. And we are secure in this love. God, may we live this way in this incredible security and so show off to a world a different kind of living, a kind of living that everybody is hungry to see. And I pray that this would happen and it would bring the spotlight onto Jesus Christ and his amazing grace. I pray in his name, amen.